Hello and welcome to episode 166 of NCP. Not 666. No, unfortunately not 666. It's going to be a while before we get to 666. The number of the beast. We're pretty close. Well, actually, 666 is actually not even the number of the beast. They got it wrong, Mm. as they do with everything. Yeah, it's apparently 616. 616. Now, we've got 166, so we're kind of like an inverted number of the beast. And because it's 616, I find it interesting, isn't that? That's the the code for the actual main Marvel Universe. Yes. That's right. So the Marvel (laughs) Universe is actually Satan. The work of the devil. I've always said that. Yeah, I can uh, do that. <laughs> I'm your host, David, and we'll be at the NCP crew. Richo. Oh, so, sorry, i got nothing more. That's uh, that's kind of boring, isn't it? Um, I'll try better next time. Luke. <laughs> you know, does this mean that we're actually living in the Marvel Universe? Um, That'd be could awesome. Could be a bit more interesting, actually? Actually, I wouldn't want to live in the Marvel Universe unless I was powered in some way. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just, you're just collateral damage. How would, you you feel, <laughs> how would you feel if you were, like, in the Marvel Universe, you were the guy that got hit by a bolt of lightning or something and just ended up paralysed? <laughs> Seriously, you'd be like, you'd be standing out in the field during a thunderstorm with an antenna in your head, waiting for the lightning to strike you so you could get superpowers, and then you just yeah, dead. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody Marvel. Hey, Crystal. I don't like this drink. <laughs> Another. Where's my bourbon? Uh, for this episode, we have two dust jackets, as is our want, <laughs> and we recast the Universal Monsters. That's right. I return to our our special recast segment, which we love dearly. It's time for the mash, the monster mash. And this time, as we mentioned, uh, I think I at working. least ten episodes ago, we're doing the Universal Monsters. I was working in the lab late one night. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a good time. It was timed well because of the announced Halloween. Universal Monsters reboot shared universe business that's going on. Again. And it's, and it's Halloween coming up. Yes. Um, I actually was going to put it into the Halloween episode, uh, but you guys are right in. I'm going to be on that episode, mm. so and I knew you guys were very excited to do this. So what? I take Not it, on the Halloween it. episode. It's the world coming to. Well, it's one of the alternate episodes. I don't accept it's, that. Well, the original crew, he's in both the, uh, the mm. new crew, so it's a new crew. Uh, we're being replaced. <laughs> being replaced. <laughs> like, like Star Trek The Next Generation. If every team has to have alternates. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dust Jacket 1 uh, will be from the sci-fi list. Uh, it is Eon by Greg Bear, uh, and Richard and myself will be discussing that. Mostly it'll be Richard. Uh, Dust Jacket 2 <laughs> is Luke and Crystal doing Luke's Pick, which was The Three-Body Problem by Lou Cizan. I pronounce it Chijin. Sweet. <laughs> you can pronounce it any way you want. <laughs> so let's uh, start off with Dust Jacket number one. It's myself and Richard. Take it away. Yes, Eon by Greg Bear. Uh, written in 1985, actually is the first book uh, in a trilogy of books known as The Way. I actually haven't read the others, so I don't really know what they're like. <laughs> I can guarantee I'm not going to read the others. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the, the, the basic premise behind this book, and this is, I think, the, the actual interesting part about it, is that an asteroid in the year 2005, an asteroid... Um, finds its way into Earth's atmosphere. It's enormous and it's hollow and filled with seven chambers. And you know, the Americans get up there and start exploring and uh, there's, there's a lot of politicking going on about this asteroid. But the important thing that they find is that the asteroid is not only from another dimension, but it's also travelled back in time hundreds of years. 
and that it was created by people in this alternate reality around the same time because a war happens. So what uh, you then get is uh, the first part of the book is a narrative exp- where, where um, our, I'm going to call her our main character. Yeah. Uh, what's her name? Vasquez. Ju- Ju- Judith? No, that's, oh, I mean, that's Hoffman. You mean Patricia? Patricia Vasquez, yeah. yeah. Where our, I'm going to call her our main character, Patricia Vasquez, um, who is a mathematician, and she's brought up... Uh, she's written a theoretical paper and that's so far in advance of any practical application that it's, it's effectively meaningless until this, this asteroid appears. So they take her up there so that she can help them um, unlock some of the mysteries of this thing. Uh, most importantly, centred around a singularity that is in the seventh and final chamber that therefore makes the interior of the asteroid apparently completely endless. Mm. Like, it, it will just go on in, in and, uh, infinitum. Um, so we follow her in the first part of the story and, and her sort of discovery of this. And in, in that sense, the, the book reminds me a lot of something like, say, Rendezvous with Rama or yeah. Ringworld, where, you know, we've discovered this weird you know, ast- astronomical thing that makes no sense and we're going out there to have a look at it yeah. and try to figure out what it is. And to me, that's actually the strongest part of the book. Exactly. The other thing is that they, they as, as I said, they discovered that a war happened on this alternate Earth, and that this is around the same time that this war is happening as well. So, during that early section, there's the race against time. How do we stop this war? Was the other big story that comes up. Yeah, there's a lot of political machinations going on, because yeah. the Cold War hasn't ended, essentially. Yeah, and yeah, and that's, that's the important thing to remember about this book, too. It was written in 1985, it's set in 2005, but it's working on the idea that the USSR is still in existence, and that tensions between America and, and Russia are uh, but basically, we're on the brink of a nuclear war. Yeah. So you get then sort of about almost the midway point of the book. Yep. It then splits off into multiple narratives. Um, and we get a lot of the political machina- machinations and the, and the war and everything that's happening on Earth. And, you know, the Russians then decide to, you know, invade and try to take over this the, this asteroid, which, which is called the Stone. Yeah. Um... At the same time, Patricia Vasquez goes down the tunnel through the, the singularity millions of miles and, and you get her story as well. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, where I have a problem with the book. And, and look, it's not necessarily Greg Bear's writing because Greg Bear is actually quite a competent writer and it's, a, it's an easy book to read. But he's writing at a period where this style of writing where you're just jumping back and forwards between multiple characters is, is prominent. You know, it's it's the Stephen King style of writing. Yeah. Um, the problem is, not everybody has the skill that Stephen King has to be able to pull it off well. Yeah. You know, and there are certain stories that just don't really interest me and certain characters that don't really intrigue me all that much at this point. Um, whereas King, in his best novels, makes each character at least interesting. Yeah. The other problem I have is that for probably a good hundred pages, maybe more... Patricia, our point of view character, is almost forgotten. Like we get, we we cut back to her from time to time, but she's not doing anything, and nothing's really happening with her. Yeah, she starts off as our point of view character, and then we lose her, and then she's gone. Yeah, and it's like well, now I've lost my point of view. Now yeah. I'm stuck with this soldier guy. Well, multiple soldiers. Yeah, but the there's main, a the main soldier, guy, the main guy the... that gets injured. Yeah, and it's like I just don't care. Yeah, <laughs> um, and unfortunately, the book then just continues that way for pretty much almost the rest of the book. Yeah. 
Um, and it's frustrating because he's established one style of writing early on, um, where, you know, you've got your point of view character and that's your focus. And then he completely loses focus. Hmm. Um, and to be honest with you, by that point, you know, Patricia's heading down this tunnel into the, the great science fiction mystery. Um, and there is some interesting stuff that happens to her down there. And, and once again, political machinations come into play there as well with what she discovers, which I, I won't go into too much detail about. You know, and, and I guess there is an attempt to then have the machinations that are happening on Earth and on uh, the stone to have those reflect and contrast what's happening with, with her. And, and there, there are some people that go looking for her as well. Mm. Some of the other people, the, the crew members on the, on, the, on the stone, go looking for her as well. So they become embroiled in it as well. But I, I kind of, my interest started to wane at that point. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I was, I was, in the beginning, I mean, like I said, because of the very rendezvous with Rama-esque sort of statue, which everybody knows I love. Yeah, um, yeah I quite enjoyed it. You know, the, the mysterious... You know, which later gets revealed to be an exact copy of one of our major asteroids. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, which, yeah. Which actually adds to the interesting mystery. It's like, oh, we've got this asteroid from another dimension, and now the asteroid from our dimension has, has arrived as well. And it's like, okay, this adds something to this mystery of what this asteroid is. Yeah, and why it's pretty it cool. Built. And and yeah, and, and the, you know the stuff inside of the singularity that makes it longer than it actually is, and you know, and all this sort of stuff. And I, and I quite like Patricia and and uh, you know the political. You know, scenario on Earth and you know the on on of War and stuff, and I do I do also quite like the the fact that the arrival of the stone it reveals uh, it reveals the history uh, of you know sort of it basically says that the war starts at a certain point, and but the arrival of the stone seems to speed it up for this particular version of Earth, and so mm. the war happens earlier than it would have happened. Yeah. So it's I mean it's right from the start you're it's you led to think that well we're actually in an alternate Earth ourselves. And so, you know, all that sort of alternate world history and stuff like that, I quite like. I quite like the two brighter, you know, devices that they use to get up and down the, the uh, table yes. and stuff. Yeah. I, do, I, I, I quite like the the fact that the, this thing is so large that a alien race was able to infiltrate and then create a civilization on it. Yes. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, for hundreds of years before anybody else even noticed. And then, you know, then the war begins and stuff. But I, I think you're, you're right on the money where it's just, it, it does become very Stephen Kinnish in terms of sort of multiple narratives, yeah. and, I, and I, think, I just lost all interests, yeah. completely the, lost interest. The problem is he throws too many characters at you, yeah. um, and honestly, half of those characters don't really serve any purpose. I mean, there was I, I remember there is one chapter where you just... Um, he, he cuts to... Um, a soldier, like an American, like a Marine, basically, mm. who is who is on the stone as part of the defense force. And you get about three pages with this guy, and, you know, he sees something mysterious, right? But we haven't encountered him in the story up to this point. We don't encounter him in the story after that point. Mm. So it's just three random pages thrown in with this guy who sees something that, that then other characters see anyway later on. Yeah. Like, the, the actual, like, Patricia sees one at one point, and it's sort of like, well... Well, why why does that why are those pages there then? Why is this character there? It's not really serving any purpose that isn't yeah. already covered, you know. And and there's there's a prologue to the book um, that I must admit frustrates me in that way as well. Like the first, I'm going to say what forty pages or so of, of the version that I've got is this prologue where you're just jumping backwards and forwards from different characters, but not really learning anything that then isn't reiterated when you actually start following Patricia properly anyway. Yeah, and it's like this prologue could just be written off completely. 
yeah. and just cut straight into Patricia and follow Patricia's story. Um, Especially the Hexamon stuff. Yeah. When you, when, when you get characters from the Hexamon talking to each other. Yeah. Before they're introduced, and it's like, well, what, what, who are these people? <laughs> What's the point of this? Yeah, and it's... Because then they it, do the exact same thing when they actually are introduced. Yeah, that, that's the thing. It's, um... And, and I'm... Uh, there were sections there where I thought, hang on a second, this is information that's being revealed to the reader, but I'm not sure that Patricia actually yeah. got this information, yet she's talking about the information that she's got. Yeah, I think um, you were too kind before, and you said it's not necessarily Greg Beard's writing. I, I think it's, it is totally Greg Beard's writing. Well, I mean, but it's a, it's it's a style of writing that just dominated that period, that yeah. mid that mid eighties period, uh, where everybody was just writing like this. Yeah, um, he, he, I've actually he read a better editor. Yeah, and I've actually read I've read two Greg Bear novels. I've also read a novel called The Forge of God. Yeah, which is basically um, you know Deep Impact, an awesome. asteroid's coming to destroy the Earth. Yeah. But it has the same problem. He just jumping through so many characters yeah. that you kind of lose sight of half of them because they're just not that interesting. Um, having said that, Patricia is an interesting character. Yeah, I like her. I like the Russian soldier guy who's, who's you know, desperate to get into space. And yeah. I like yeah. him as well. I can't remember his name. Um, Probably yeah. Dimitri or Yuri or something. Who knows? Um, look, there is, a, there, there is a couple of interesting characters. Yeah. And, and I, he does try to give those characters a bit of depth and, and complexity... I'm not quite sure if, if he succeeds in that regard. Um, because he's also at the same time trying to do these big concept, hard science ideas. Yeah. And so there are times where the characters just become ciphers for that information. No, I, 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 well, I'll go straight, straight up and say I don't think he succeeds. I think he should have cut the cast in half. Hmm. Well, I think he should just, just focus on Patricia. Yeah, I mean the character, other characters need to be there. I mean, I do quite like oh, the, fact, the, the fact that the different governments are fighting over who actually owns this device and they send up the mm. armies and all that sort of business but you can still like do that. a lot of that but you can do all that without mentioning specific people and you can do all of that through her yeah. like sh- as she yeah, discovers she it, it we discover it yeah. as well um, uh, but it, like I said it's just it's a style of writing that I must admit I'm not really a fan of cool. for the most part so for Eon yeah it, it didn't quite work for me um, one of the things that really didn't work for me and I don't know if you had the same thing but he uh, Greg Beer is obviously a big fan of Ralph Nader he is a big fan of Ralph Nader. And there's yeah. a there's, a, there's a, a, gr- a group of people in this book who are called Naderites, yeah. who base their entire philosophy on on Ralph Nader. And I've got yeah. nothing against Ralph Nader, right? I mean, you know, he was you know he does some good work, yeah. But they've I, I just I found that that really it really made me off put because he was a, really because he's a real off. person because he's is a real one? person. I guess I right. guess what it was. It yeah. just became it became like a Greg Bear. hero worship thing. Hero worship thing. Yeah, yeah. Spot good on. Call, Thank you. Good, that's good that's like and it's like yeah. it was like. No, nah, I mean, well, I, I think I would have been, would have been a, less, a little bit less on the nose if he made a fake person who was basically just Ralph Nader anyway. Yeah. Look, Greg, Greg, Greg Bear is mm. certainly not one to um, hold back his political views in his <laughs> yeah, books. That's true. You know? And I've got no real problem with that. I must admit, the, the Ralph Nader thing did um, strike me as a little bit strange. But then also, I, I suppose too, though, we're looking at it from, you know, Ralph Nader sort of now, whereas Ralph Nader, as he was at that point, having sort of come to prominence in the 70s as like an anti-nuclear war... Yeah, in the, the uh, car um, safety thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, might have been, been a little bit more palpable to us, perhaps, reading it in yeah, 85. Yeah, even there, I would have been like... Uh, yeah, possibly. Possibly. I mean, it's like it's like calling a race of people, you know, the, the Bononites or something, because, you know, it's a big, you're a big fan of Bono and his stuff. I mean, it just... It's, oh, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to write a book now. <laughs> the Bono Knights. I thought you meant the Bognonites from that 
novel that we read. <laughs> uh, it is, I, just, I found oh, it. Anyway. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's pretty much all I've got. Yeah, I do. I do want to say that there were there were things I liked about the book as well. Like yeah. I've made it sound like it's the it's worst an awesome book cover. ever. <laughs> yeah, I've actually got a different cover to that. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got the the masterworks version of it. Oh, um, you got ripped off. But um, I, I do like the hard science of it, and I do like. I actually like the stone itself. I'm absolutely fascinated by, absolutely fascinated by the stone and the idea of the stone and the the layout and structure of the stone and the different chambers and what they are. Like I said, it's, it's that that first part of the book. Yeah. That really captures that that sense of awe and wonder that, that the best kind of science fiction discovery books have, where it's like, we're going somewhere and it blows our mind. And it's blowing your mind as you're reading it because you're reading about us having our minds blown by it. you know. And, and so I love that. I love the concepts behind the book and the ideas that are present in the book, you know, and the idea it's come from another dimension. All of that sort of stuff appeals to me more than the execution of those ideas in the story. Um, one thing I will Great. say that I don't think Greg Bear writes very well is romantic or sexual interaction between characters. <laughs> There's a couple of scenes in this one where where it's it, 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 it's it's all it's it's right on the edge of tipping into melodrama. <laughs> um, I think you're being too kind, Richard. I just don't get it. It's I think it is as like a soap opera script. There are, there are, there are moments like <laughs> that, yeah, where it does kind of. But I mean, there's there's some social aspects of it I like, yeah. And the actual structure, the 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 social structure of the people working within the stone, I think is kind of interesting as well because it develops in a way that I, I can see actually happening. Yeah. But it's just the way that these ideas are taken and then executed is what uh, what loses me. Gotcha. You want to give you a score? I didn't like this book at all. Um, I was very disappointed, which is a shame because I was really looking forward to it because mm. uh, uh, because of the you know the. Rama esque. You stepped it up pretty quickly. Sorry, you stepped it up pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, I was, all, I was all over it. And plus, it's got an awesome, awesome eighties cover, and I was, yeah. I was like, "Yep, yeah, I'm on this for sure." And uh, no, nah, I actually disliked most of the time. And yeah. I, I actually have a confession to make: that I actually got about halfway, and then skipped to the end. <laughs> so I got about. I, I just, let's just look at it now. I actually got. I got just, just slightly more than halfway because I got to foot chapter forty four. Yeah. And then I just skipped. <laughs> so well, you know. and that, that that is around the point where it started to lose me as well. All right, good. Well, I'm glad because yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you said is it as like you said during your review. So I'm like, oh, obviously I didn't miss anything, so I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which I don't normally recommend. I but I tried to do to read the whole thing, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I had too many other things to worry about. So uh, yeah, didn't like this book at all. I don't recommend. Give it one point five looks. Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I remember in discussing it with Luke while I was reading the book. My, I think my first review of it was, "God, this book is annoying me yep. because of that prologue." And then, then we actually get into the story, and I remember the, then saying to you, "Hang on, this book got really interesting yep. all of a sudden. I'm yeah. actually really enjoying this." Yep. And then the third review was, "No, he's lost me again." <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, that's the only reason he gets one point five for it. And I should yeah. point that out. That was in the space of a twenty four hour period. Too. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Like like that that. Once we're following Patricia and she's exploring the, the stone, I was there. I was burning through the book. Yeah. And then it just goes off on too many tangents and it did, and it did lose me. So, um, look, I'm, I'm going to give it two Lukes. Had it continued as it was going, <laughs> it would have been probably a four Luke book. But because halfway through it, just that's it. Yeah. It just it just goes off in an area that I didn't really appeal with. So, yeah, two Lukes. Awesome. Uh, so this up, we've got Luke. And Crystal, with Luke's pick, the three-buddy problem. Um, okay, I'm going to call spoiler alert now, not because I'm going to intentionally, believe, um, intentionally, intentionally reveal spoilers, 
but I might inadvertently let a couple of things slip because in many cases it's a bit hard. I found it. I find it a bit hard to talk about the book without talking about some of the more interesting stuff towards the end. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I'm going to call spoiler alert now. Not not intentionally, but you know, I'm just in case. Just in case. Right. Oh, yeah. um, okay. So the three body problem is um, uh, the first Chinese. Uh, for, um, the first release, Western release of uh, uh, the author, uh, Chinese author Xi Jin Lu, and it's been translated by Ken Lu, um, and they are no relation from what I can understand. Um, this has been ha- this has had uh, awards uh, heaped on it, both in China and in America, where it won the Hugo. This is Hugo, I should point out, and that was the after the um, the the furor over Puppygate mm. um, to get. To refer to something to our you know conspiracy stuff from a couple of episodes ago, um, I thought it would be, would be prudent to actually have a review of it. The story opens um, with the Cultural Revolution in China in the sixties um, taking place, in which one of our main characters Yi Wenjie is witnessing her father, um, uh, an, eminent, an eminent scientist and scholar, um, being murdered by his or confronted and confronted and murdered. I'm gonna I'll, I won't mince my words here. Um, by his uh, rather radical um, revolutionary student body. Um, she herself, including his wife, um, she herself is um, outcast as a, political, as a political prisoner and sent off to a, um, a secret installation in China because she, has, she herself um, is a scientist to study some of the radio signals that they've got there. And through that she finds some... Um, Rather interesting signals from the great beyond, from the great beyond. We then cut to the present day, where um, uh, a modern uh, nanophysicist uh, called Wang Miao, um, who's attempting to work on a kind of particle accelerator, starts seeing through f- photographs that he takes, um, and then in his in his mind's eye, a countdown. Sorry, Wang's working on nanomaterials, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. But he's got um, an accelerator. Going Running. off, and, the, and then there's a part of the when he um when he starts to realize that there's a countdown going on both in the photos and then in his mind's eye he has to shut that project down yep. by doing so, um, stopping the countdown. Um, and intrigued by, sort of frightened by what he's seeing, and intrigued by the mystery, he begins to investigate, and eventually Lee comes into contact with, first of all, with um, Yi Wenji in the present day as an older um, matriarch and um, teacher, and she tells him her, she begins to tell him her story, um, analyzing radio signals um, at Red Coast Base back in the late 60s, early 70s, to through to, actually through to the early 80s. Um, but he also encounters um, a, a game called Three Body, which is a virtual reality game in which, um, it, which um, civilizations progress, um, advance, and then fall in, you know, a blaze of destruction. But the mystery about it being the three sons that follow um, in a rather very strange, uh, very strange orbit, and the idea being that those three sons lead the destruction of the civilizations, and then seeing how that relates to what he's seeing. Like I said, trying not to spoil some of this stuff here. But it's a bit hard not to. It's a bit. It's a bit that. hard not to. Yeah. The the chief pro- and as you could probably tell the chief problem with what I'm what I'm describing there is there's actually not a lot of drama, particularly yeah. in Wang. Particular I found in Wang's story, um, there's a lot of exposition, a lot of interesting science, but it's sort of just 
it's just sort of info dumped on us mm. um, instead of Wait, so, so maybe it's, it's when the one that finds the countdown yes. yeah Wang sees the okay. countdown so how is he how can that not be drama though like he sees a countdown no, that no. he has to now stop Luke's in not a lot of drama yeah oh um, not a lot of drama and, he actually, and so. he actually stops the countdown early on oh does he, uh, he actually shut part of the is that the project that he's working on um, he needs to shut it down mm. oh right and the shutdown is explained the reason for the shutdown and the countdown is explained later on Gotcha. Um, this is exp- like um, talking about conspiracy theories. Yeah, this talk- book's full of. Um, um, right. <laughs> in amongst, uh, there's not a lot of drama in in Wang's story. There's a lot of, as I said, a lot of info dumping, mm. a lot of telling us interesting science, but not allowing us to sort of see it and allow it to inform the world. Mm. Um, interspersed with that is Yu Wenji's story, um, which is actually quite fascinating because it's about seeing how she has to struggle to. Um, survive and thrive in an environment where she is sort of seen as the enemy and no one trusts her um, to the point where she actually does some um, rather nasty things um, in an attempt to um, keep herself alive but also in an attempt to keep the project that she's going on which is discovering mm-hmm. alien signals in outer space and aliens in fact attempting to contact us mm-hmm. and uh, through that leading to you know the formation of the of the three body game. Like I said, I'm trying to not reveal anything at all here. All the really interesting stuff comes into the really the last act of uh, page 250 um, of my edition, which is the the spoiled edition that you've got there. Yeah. Um, and I kind of felt that well, really, this is where the story should have started. You would have should have made you and G the main character mm. um, and actually get to all this stuff on page 250 where you reveal just what she's been up to, just what the three-body game is. Um, and is what pretty safe to say the three-body game is actually aliens communicating with us? No. No. Yeah. Which is where I was... I'm I was, no, I was going with that myself. Right. Going, okay, this is their attempts to communicate... Their attempts to test us to see mm. just how advanced we are. No, I never got that at all. You I never got that at all? I, I kind of figured where it was coming... I don't know if I can say where it was coming from. Sure. The, um, I kind of figured out that it was... Um, put together by the people forming the con- mm. just conspiracy, for lack of a, a better mm. word, to... Uh, what's the name of the organisation there? Red Coast? No, no. that's not Red Coast. It's... Oh. it's sorry, it's the, it's the one I know. The organization. SETI? No. no. Um, SETI is mentioned <laughs> quite um, liberally through this. Some ATO has got humans in there. ETO, yeah, 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 the ETO, the ETO organization. There's two different factions in that, but mm. without going too much detail, I, I figured out that it was that it was produced by them in order to mm. um, get recruits into the organization. Is that because um, of the heavy Earth-based? I think it was just the way that Wang was introduced to the game. Okay, no, that makes yeah. sense because the game that he plays. Um, so it's like Last Starfighter. A little bit, yeah, and I did, have, but without the "we need you to help save the universe" thing, it's more of a. We want to know about your thoughts. And yeah, we want to know about your thoughts and, and, and are you right for our organization. Gotcha. Um, but the the game that he plays um, sees different reflections of human history, and not just Chinese history. It should be pointed out, although there is, you know, some, but also um, uh, European, American. Um, Isaac Newton makes an appearance. Einstein makes an appearance. Mm. Um, at one point, because they're, they all represent civ- different civilizations that have risen or fallen um, in terms of the game time. Yeah, but the big, like I said, the big problem is that Wang. There's not a lot of drama in Wang's story, and there are moments, particularly at the end, where Wang is actually taken completely out of the action, mm. um, as uh, Wenji's story um, starts to take full steam. And and Wenji's story is actually quite interesting. 
when we find out the reasons as to why the ETO exists, yes. yep. um, it then focuses solely on those reasons in transcripts that UNG is going uh, that UNG is telling um, an interrogator um, concerning translations of the signals that they've uncovered. Gotcha. At that point, um, Yi Wang is completely removed from the story at all. Um, it's completely removed from the story. And so, and that, that starts to answer some of the things that he's actually seen, things like the countdown. Yeah. And it's so, weird the way they describe that, though, because it's like in the, like a narrative of what's actually going on there rather than just transmissions that have said to Earth what they said there. Yeah. Um, and not only that, it's also sort of, they also just sort of throw, throw away the, the mystery that gets him involved in the first place, yeah. almost. Right. It's a, Chinese, it's a Chinese novel, so there are going to be some cultural um, elements and, you know, some, some modes and methods of storytelling which run contrary to um, uh, the methods of storytelling um, that I am familiar with. Mm. Uh, and this, this, this novel is... And that's not to detract from... The, they don't detract from the novel at all. It just means that instead of getting a, a linear narrative from going from one character from one point A to point B, um, the story is trying to tell itself in sweeps, which is fine. Um, there are many novels that actually do that, many fantasy novels that do that. Um, my problem is is that a lot of really what you're trying to establish early on in the narrative is in fact paid off by other means and you just and we're just kind of told rather than allowed the characters to um, uh, really discover it as part of um, their story. So yeah, I found this problem I found the novel highly problematic. Crystal. I am. Um didn't find it as problematic. It starts off reading like a historical novel, hmm. and and, it, and it's quite, it's a little dry in the beginning. Uh, uh, it took me a long time to warm up to it, but I, eventually I did, and then got to the point where I couldn't really put it down. So I'd encourage anyone who started it that might want to sort of put it down straight away. Kept going a little bit. Um, I agree with you on the. The cultural thing. I, I found the rhythm of the book quite different to what I would normally. You, know, you, you sort of think it's going to go one way, and then it just flips another mm. really quickly. Mm. Um, like there's a particular scene where uh, I won't spoil anything. I'll just try to describe the scene because so Luke knows what I'm talking about. But there's a um, they're having a meeting, and there's a girl there with a sphere, mm. and um, she gets confronted with. Um, I won't say what the sphere is and I expected that to kind of play out kind of American hostage sort of style yeah. but it doesn't, it flips completely differently to how you think it would mm. um, there's a few bits in there that sort of stretch my incredulity a little bit um, but but not uh, it's hard to explain because the parts that do stretch it a bit is where they're talking about quantum physics sort of stuff and and once you start talking about quantum physics you could probably say the weirdest thing and we'll just go oh yeah well it's yeah. just quantum physics um <laughs> uh i i didn't mind the info dumps so much i i found the story flowed quite well i, I and i didn't really mind the switch from Yi to wang i quite like wang's character but i thought he was a terrible husband <laughs> Yes. <laughs> He's a really terrible... When he starts... Wife is only mentioned once, yeah. and that's it, you know, at the start. Yeah, when he, when he first starts seeing this countdown that Luke was describing, um, his wife's a bit concerned about him because he's doing this crazy stuff, but he completely shuts her out and, and basically leaves the apartment and doesn't tell her where he's going, and he's out all night, and I'm like, 
that's just not right. <laughs> but apart from that, I quite like his character, and I really quite the, like the character that. of um, She, the policeman. Yeah, I did like I did like She, and he was he and Wenji kind of sustained me enough to want yeah. to keep reading. She's kind of like the Chinese Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, but I I, I I I think I enjoyed this book a lot more than um, Luke did. Um, the parts of it, right? Like, for instance, when they're, um, Yi, when she has been interrogated and she's been told about these transmissions, the way the transmissions are described is a bit weird considering them to be transmissions because it seems like you're actually there. Mm. Luke did jump parts of the narrative, whether that's, 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 you need to, to do a, a quick plot, but that there are other bits that hang it together a bit more firmly. I, do, I find any sort of, novel that deals with planetary stuff that's substantially different from ours, quite intriguing um, and, and and the science seemed good from what I could tell I mean I'm no scientist but it seemed, it seemed good, in some parts there was a few gimmies but I let that slide for the sake of narrative um, yeah I, I liked it, it's probably the first non-English based book I've, I've read other than um, Umberto Eco's in the name of the rose. Yeah, I liked it. I, I'm not sure I'm going to continue on to the second book, maybe. Um, I got to the end really abruptly because mm. I thought there was another 60-odd pages to go, but at the end, the last part of the book was actually a preview of the next book. So I, oh, oh, it's just finished. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind it, of does it, just, it just end stop. like that. Mm. Um, but because it's the first in a trilogy, um, that, that makes sense. So mm. I, I, maybe I'll read the preview and see whether I want to continue reading it or not. Yeah, um, I kind of thought it was less of, you know, act one of a, a wider, you know, opera and more the overture. Yep. Um, I didn't think, I didn't think the story was big enough, you know, volumes two and three might be um, epic, but I didn't think this one was particularly big enough to certainly warrant the 390 pages. Without spoiling it, what did you think of the solution to capture the, um, the relay station that's actually a ship? I thought it was clever. I kind of, but my, my, my issue with that was, again, it gets back to Wang really should have been one of the ones to come up with that. Yeah. Um, it's actually um, suggested by um, Dashi. Yeah, but it doesn't really suit Wang's character to come up with something that it, But it's more, it's more a case of just needing something, needing Wang to do something instead of just, sort of just sitting there observing how the the world is sort of slightly changing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think Wang's meant to be the embodiment of your every man character, sort of stumbling into this and figuring out, trying to figure out what's happening, rather than your your hero. No, and I, and I understand, and I understand that. But my um, I, even even with that, you still need to see him do something at the end. Yeah. It, it doesn't need to be majorly heroic, but he you may need... be building up to something. In the next Maybe time. I'm torn between giving it a three and a half and a four. I think I'll I think I'll give it a four. Yeah. I... This, like I said, this was this, it's not an awful novel by any stretch of the imagination, but yeah, like I said, I, th- I, I had problems to do, I had narrative problems with it, so I'm giving this two and a half. Awesome source. The next books, uh, one of them will obviously be from the sci fi list. We didn't say where Eon was on the sci fi list. No, we didn't say where Eon was yeah, on the sci fi list. Yeah, who cares where it was? Hopefully, it was on the very bottom. Uh, uh, no, no, it's in the top 100, in the latter half of the top 100. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, the next one from the sci-fi list is... We're going all gung-ho with the next one. That's right, we're going to blow stuff up. <laughs> we're doing Starship Troopers. We're going to do our bit for the Federation. We are. We are. <laughs> going on a bug hunt. 
Star- we are going on a bug hunt with Starship Troopers. By Robert Highland. Robert A. Highland. Yes. And uh, the next crew pick is Crystal. Okay. Once again, I'm going to offer a choice oh. <laughs> to the crew. Uh, we're either going to do um, Weapons of Choice or The Martian. <sighs> I want to do Starship Troopers. Yeah. We've got to blow stuff up. <laughs> yep. Um, so I, kn- I know you really want to do Weapons of Choice. But it's also a very long book, so I don't um, mind. I really but, don't mind either one. But The Martian is actually one that I've started and I do want to finish. Okay. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Okay, so that works. I actually was going to do that, well, suggest that ages ago, knowing that you were reading it. So yeah. uh, I've already reviewed it on a, on a Bo episode, but it'd be good to do a dust jacket. Yeah. Good yeah. choice. Cool. And the fact that you gave a choice because of Weapons of Choice was choice. Word. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm so, I'm so unfunny sometimes. Uh, all right, well, then it's uh, Rich and myself with Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, Crystal and Luke with The Martian. Interesting to see how that turns out, considering you were kind of like that with Eon. <laughs> well, I've read Starship Troopers before. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I already know what I do and don't like about it. Seize the future. <laughs> so there you go. Cool, so let's, uh, let's uh, move on to our recast of the Universal Monsters. Awesome. So, uh, as is with our recast, uh, we've each crew member's taken a particular decade, which means that I am, in fact, first because I did the seventies. I gotta say, I actually have a bit of a problem with this. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of the Universal Monster films, as of course we all are, um, and actually, I found I found it kind of hard to sort of get into it because I couldn't really work out sort of, you know, a, a kick for it. You know what I mean? Like in, in previous ones, I've done, you know, I, I've where I've done the seventies. I made a more black exploitation, I made it in sort of, sort of stuff like. And I didn't, I didn't really want to go this go that way with the Universal Monsters, right? So at first, I was a bit a bit friendly about it, but then I did a bit of research, and uh, I've come up with what I, what I believe to be uh, the perfect plan. Now I'm doing I'm doing a bit of uh, changing of history. This is alternate history Earth version of what happened in the seventies. After the success of Jaws, Universal wants more monster movies, and so therefore plans a reboot of the Universal Monster series of films. All the films are put in production simultaneously, with a lot of the crew working on multiple sets when needed. Headed by producers Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, they then involve Glenn A. Larson, who's uh, <laughs> huge in the TV world and, and known for his, his, his ideas. Uh, he's the one that, who, who suggests the shared universe idea. Uh, which they wholeheartedly agree with. But however, the partnership is broken after Larson also suggests that in order to capitalise on the release of Star Wars in 1977, uh, the new films gain a sci-fi bend and take place in space. (laughs) Uh, Larson is uh, booted out of the production and uh, then goes on to make great success with Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. So these films all, ta- all, all take place uh, in the later half of uh, the 1970s and are released in 78 and 79. Uh, as uh, Universal was in negotiations with Andrew Lloyd Webber for a musical version of Fan of the Opera, they decided not to include that film in the reboot. And that's actually true. Fan of the Opera came out in 1982. Uh, and Universal chairman Lou Wasserman uh, 
doesn't like the story of Hunchback of Notre Dame, and so that's not included in the project either. And that's actually also true. So they therefore decide to go to focus on Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Invisible Man, the Wolfman, and the Creature from the Black Lagoon, and each film is released in that order. Now, I've kind of cheated, as is my want, <laughs> uh, because actually Universal did in fact release a Dracula film in 1979, starring uh, Frank Langella. Uh, and uh, it was so it was directed uh, directed by John Badham, which is a weird choice. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, and star, yes. stars Frank Langella, Lawrence Olivia, Donald Pleasance, and Kate Nelligan as as the love interest, um, whatever her name is. The woman always gets relegated to the love interest. No, Kate plays uh, Lucy. Ah. Um, so, sorry. The woman always gets relegated to the love interest. <laughs> Yes, um, and it and it was more of a. And it's not terrible. It's not a terrible film. I mean, I've actually seen it fairly recently. It's it's, it's it, it deals much like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's version. It, it tries to put a bit of a love story in there. So it's, I mean, he's doing everything. I mean, he's a horrible person, but he does everything he does for love. Oh. Um, and so yeah, I mean, the acting's awful, but the production is actually quite good. It actually looks quite. It's lavish. Yeah, it's it's lavish. Yes, I like that. I'll go with that. Um, so yeah, everybody does their best. Uh, so yeah, so that's actually real. I've, in, I've woven that into my narrative. You've woven a mini review in which there, which means I don't. Yeah, which I, I don't. I don't means I don't need to include it with my other stuff. So I didn't bother casting that because it's already been done. Cut <laughs> me out. Except it wasn't in space. It was, no, well, they kicked him out of the production because of that ludicrous idea. <laughs> uh, okay, so the next one uh, in the, to be released was Frankenstein. For the director, they chose Michael Winner, uh, who you would know from The Sentinel and Death Wish and stuff like that. And God, he's a douche. Uh, <laughs> uh, Michael Winner uh, wanted uh, to play Henry Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein himself. Michael Winner wanted Leonard Nimoy. And uh, so that's who we got. Uh, the monster was played by Richard Keel. Yeah, Richard uh, <laughs> was wrapped with this. Uh, he, he, gave it his, he gave it his all. You know, this, this was his big break to do some actual acting and stuff. And from all accounts, did a great job. Uh, Elizabeth was played by Christina Raines, who was also from The Sentinel and uh, Michael Winner's other movie, The Duelists, and uh, was, you know, pretty much the, the beauty of the day. Uh, and Fritz uh, was played by Michael Berryman, who you know from The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, now, Fritz, it's, it's important to note that in the original uh, Frankenstein movie, Igor doesn't exist. It's, 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 yeah. He's basically an amalgamation of different characters. Uh, the original uh, sort of deformed henchman of uh, Dr. Frankenstein his assistant his lab assistant was in fact Fritz uh, and Michael Berryman he's freaky looking <laughs> so, he is but, yes, he uh, is. but by all accounts a nice guy uh, now that's uh, it was a troubled production uh, <laughs> ne- Nimoy was annoyed uh, as all Michael Winner productions are uh, Nimoy was annoyed by the casting of the much younger uh, Christina Raines as his love interest he, th- he thought, thought it was ridiculous she's just like 25 years younger than he is um, although he liked her as an actress and enjoyed working with her he just thought it looked a bit silly. Um, and, uh, and due to, to uh, Michael Winner's uh, winning personality, uh, Nimoy swears to never work with Winner again. <laughs> well, you've got into a lot of detail about this production. Uh, you should have seen him working on it. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was crazy. And I based that, I mean, just for, for a bit of background, I based that fact on because the Michael Winner is a complete dickhead. Yeah. Um, and just about everybody who works with him agrees never to work with him again. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> that works. Uh, anyway, so next up, so uh, next up was the Mummy. Now uh, the Mummy, directed by John Milius. 
<laughs> renowned for his screenwriting at that time, but uh, John Milius is uh, is a man's man. I, I love John Milius, <laughs> and uh, he just goes for the crazy, crazy stuff. And he wanted an all-out action adventure, mummy. Um, so no, none of this horror business. <laughs> he wanted action, action, and if you could, more action. Uh, he went. He went with uh, for Imhotep the Mummy. He went with John Saxon. You would know from Enter the Dragon. Uh, so John Saxon was uh, willing to. Uh, so just quickly, John Millis. So to play his Egyptian, um, uh, his 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 uh, resurrected Egyptian priest, he went with a, a Hong Kong American. <laughs> no, so so John Saxon is as American as they come, and uh, so he went with John Saxon because John Saxon was a willing to be wrapped up in the bandages and have his face obscured. Yep. Um, and unlike the original Mummy movie. The, there is no character. He, he decided not to go with um, the fact that when you see the mummy in his human form, mm. um, he's taken that element of the story completely out. The mummy is completely wrapped at all times, and because John Saxon can't act. That's uh, true. For, for, <laughs> for Frank, for Frank Wemple, he went with Charlton Heston. <laughs> now he originally wanted Charlton Heston as Imhotep, but Charlton refused to have his face covered. Of course, it is. So, but, and, and Charlton said, "Actually, well, I'll play. I'll play Frank." And so, uh, so it's a, basically it's an all-out action adventure with, with a, a gun-toting Doctor Wemple versus a uh, an, a kung fu action fighting mummy. Because you can't take that gun from him. No, Michael. Uh, so it's very you know a seventy actions at the time. And for Helen, um, who's the you know, the love interest, who is actually the reincarnated mm. lover of uh, Imhotep, they went with Britt Eklund from The Wicker Man. Can't act. But gorgeous, <laughs> and so they also took out the element of uh, of of how the mummy gets killed at the end, where she uh, he tries to uh, tries to kill her in order to turn her into a mummy. Um, when she prays to the goddess Isis to defend her, and the statue kills the mummy, they take all that out. <laughs> it's basically just John versus Charlton. <laughs> Great move. <laughs> <laughs> for the Invisible Man, the director they went with Elliot Silverstein, uh, who is uh, big at the time for A Man Called Horse and the Car. Um, for Dr. Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man, they went with Chris Sarandon from The Sentinel on Fright Night. Although uh, not at this point from Fright Night. No, Certainly from The Sentinel. Well, I mentioned yeah. Fright Night because you, you would know. You would know. Yeah. And that. The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah, are you going to know The Sentinel at this point? No. Has anybody actually ever seen The Sentinel? Yeah. No. I've seen it. Awful. Yes. Right, so, <laughs> I don't know what happened during that film. The bit where all the D four people come up the stairs are like, well, this has gone on for far too long. Anyway, so uh, yeah, Chris Sarandon for Jack Griffin. Uh, for Flora, they went with Bibbly D'Angelo, who you most obviously know from National Lampoon's Vacation, but was also in the Sentinel with Chris. Uh, and uh, for Doctor Arthur Kemp, they went with Michael Caine. <laughs> now Elliot took this seriously Elliot you know he's a man who takes his, his, his stuff seriously he wanted to do like a serious type picture there but Chris Sarandon being Chris Sarandon totally botches it he's, he's, uh, Sarandon is mocked for his over the top performance as Kane so he's like, he's like completely over the top he hams it right up he hams it right up and so Silverstone very disappointed Kane later admits that he was slumming it and it's the beginning of his slumming period Oh, you, mean, you have to remember yeah, he's also, you mean the 80s yeah so, yeah, so it's the beginning of his 80s slumming period because before this of course he didn't get Carter mm. you know we were very serious and then so this is where, the 80s and suddenly doing the yeah, hand this is, this, is, this is Kane doing it for the money uh, however the cinematography and special effects are praised oh uh, and uh, <laughs> we move on to The Wolfman directed by Paul Schrader he would of course know from Bullet Collar Raging Bull and various other excellent films Paul Schrader an excellent director for Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, they went with Christopher Walken, and he took it yeah. deadly seriously. No, he, no, he wanted, no he's, he, this is 
This is uh, around the time of uh, the Deer Hunter. Christopher Walken is on top of the world, and he's just he's just not taking any crap. He's just deadly serious. He wanted out and out horror. Uh, for, Sir jo- for Sir John Talbot, they went with Alec Guinness, and for Gwen, the love interest, they went with Anne Archer, an excellent actress. Uh, the most acclaimed film of the series, a serious attempt at drama and horror. The super supernatural elements are played down a bit, but there are a real sense of horror and of losing control of oneself through Christopher's performance. So the the highest reviewed end. Uh, money-making film of the lot. Did you get an Oscar for that one? I don't. I didn't give him an Oscar. <laughs> I didn't give him an Oscar. I didn't go that quite that. Far. Well, they'd already given him one for the Deer Hunter. Yeah. So. And last but not least, the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, directed by Richard Marquand, who uh, was around that time was known for the Legacy, and of course went on to do Return of the Jedi. Uh, the Gill Man was played by Mark Spitz, who was the Olympic gold medalist champion at the time. Nice. Um, and uh, so obviously uh, all the underwater work is uh, quite well done. Not much of an actor, but when you're playing Gil Man, who really cares? Uh, Dr. David Reed was played by Scott Glenn. And Kay Lawrence, the love interest, Catherine Ross uh, from The Graduate and The Legacy. Uh, again, they took it seriously. Uh, Richard is uh, you know, a serious British director, and he wanted you know, to actually make a good effort of it. Uh, so it was praised for its underwater sequences, uh, sequences uh, but basically dismissed as not scary or even thrilling. Oh, and bombed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is detailed. Uh, so yeah, so all in all, the uh, the uh, 19- late seventies reboot was uh, was not a so financial success, and they would not return to the properties again until Stephen Summers the Mummy, which is basically just a rip off of John Millions as the Mummy. Yes, I was about to say. <laughs> hang on, they actually did make that one. <laughs> I had a lot of fun doing this. Huh? <laughs> so, because uh, I was the seventies, that means we next up is Luke with the eighties. Uh, now I'm going to put a small copyright on mine, um, <laughs> not in terms of uh, the characters, of course, because I can't. The uh, Frankenstein, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, they're all either in the public domain due to you know being in the public consciousness well after their gotcha. death, or the films themselves being the property of Universal. Yeah. Um, I'm going to put a copyright on the story. Right. Okay. Um, now, I <laughs> copyright and TM, Luke. Yep. Okay. Because I actually quite li- I quite like this. Um, okay. So I uh, I didn't go with the individual. I went with the shared universe, but I didn't go with the individual films just yet. They would, they would be the product of um, the success. Well, the success of the super film that gets made first. Right. Okay. Um, and so, so unlike the Marvel method of the singulars going into the, the the group, you went with the group into the singular. Well, you know who these guys are. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. don't need to do films leading up. You want to you know you want to see a big slam bang um, action adventure directed by James Cameron. Yeah. Um, or is possibly it dra- is it directed by James Cameron? Yeah. So it's awesome. Not, so it's not as, as essentially a horror film per se. Yeah. Um, it's more of a fantasy adventure film. Um, and we start off with Sigourney Weaver. Um, playing uh, the type of character that Sigourney Weaver tends to play strong but she's an archaeologist remember this is the 80s um, and post Raiders of the Lost Ark so yep. Spielberg could also get involved with this as well post Raiders of the Lost Ark archaeology and archaeology archaeologist adventurers are all the rage and she is accompanied by a, um, a rather uh, low status sort of uh, hairy looking Jack Nicholson think a combination of Chinatown and um, The Shining and that's where I'm going from with him. And they are, in fact, in a dig in the Middle East for the moment, as I haven't got a, this, uh, a proper location, um, doing an archaeological dig, just these two. 
um, they eventually stumble on um, a kind of a, a hollow earth, centre of the earth type environment in which they discover that Frankenstein's monster, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> you've, got remember, you've got to remember at this point Schwarzenegger was in his Conan Terminator period, so yeah. you know, not mm. a great, still not a great actor, um, but had strong presence, and if you didn't give him too much lines of dialogue, could actually be could actually carry the screen quite well. Mm. Um, and Frankenstein's monster is um, learning, is um, presiding over an environment um, involve an environment where. Um, lives um, the creature from the Black Lagoon played by Jeff Goldblum awesome nice <laughs> um, and occasionally we get um, uh, we get visited by um, uh, the Phantom of the Opera Eric Eric, um, played by Timothy Dalton now the reasoning there is that unlike the previous Phantom of the Opera the Phantom of the Opera has gone, gone through a bit of a change he has in fact uh, rejected the, um, the person who lives in the dark persona per se and has become a bit of a spy and an adventurer himself. So cool. he's almost an Errol Flynn-like character who actually goes out and does some espionage work for Frankenstein's monster so that Frankenstein's monster can learn about what's going on in the world. Um, played by, Tim- like I said, Timothy Dalton. And he is accompanied occasionally by uh, the Invisible Man, played by John Lithgow. Nice. Um, someone with a nice, strong voice. Um, what, our, what Sigourney Weaver discovers is that Frankenstein has this rather ornate, elaborate coffin um, uh, buried away in one of the chambers in Centre Earth. And that's actually the, the real re- That's actually the real reason why she's come to the Middle East. She's come to find this coffin. Mm-hmm. But before she can do too much um, investigate, before she can do too much investigating, um, a group of scarabs invade and take the coffin away. <laughs> and they take the coffin back to Imhotep, played by Ralph Julia. Nice. <laughs> um, Raul Julia has the coffin and he opens it up, and inside of, is of course, and we're cutting away from Centre Earth here. Cutting is of course um, the the corpse of Dracula, played by Jeremy Irons. Oh, nice. His whole th- his whole deal, of course, is he's attempting to revive him, being a resurrected person himself, and attempting to conquer the world. Wants to gain control of Dracula, and through Dracula, gain control of the va- of the world's vampire population. Um, to complete his uh, his world domination plans, what he has, of course, not re- not taken into consideration is that Dracula doesn't like that very much. Mm. So Dracula, of course, uh, sets Dracula's into, no one's pawn. Dracula's no one's pawn, yeah. and sets into motion a counterattack of his own in an attempt to um, to wipe out the the mummy zombie horde um, and take over the world himself. So effectively, the whole the conflict of the film is vampires versus mummies, with our guys trapped in the middle. What we discover about um, what, we, but what, we, what we also discover is that you know um, Sigourney Weaver has in fact been trying to find the tomb of Dracula um, because she's in fact part Van Helsing, uh, and then through the course of through the course of the story, also discovers that she's also half Frankenstein. So what? she's a she's a con- she, brilliant. <laughs> of, like I said, genius. <laughs> and so that she she involves the two families, the, the the two big families who are in fact who have in fact uh, taken it upon themselves to protect the world from guy from all these creatures. Yeah. And by t- finding Dracula's by finding Dracula's tomb, they can actually um, safeguard the world by either killing him completely or putting him so far away that no one can get to him. 
The Jack Nicholson's character is, of course, played is of course the Wolfman, and he's accompanying her because he believes he can find a cure for his lycanthropy. And of course, through this, uh, Sigourney Weaver um, begins to fall for Frankenstein, and um, you know becomes the bride. Genius! I want to see it. Interesting. And like I said. Uh, it, it's, it's I don't a, see Sigourney Weaver falling for Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't see Sigourney Weaver, but, I've got, I've got she, but it was more a case of just wanted someone strong enough to um, yeah. uh, to really hold her own. Um, and I didn't want someone like Linda Hamilton because Linda Hamilton doesn't become interesting until Terminator 2, yeah. whereas Sigourney Weaver was coming off the back of Alien already. And Alien and was a far better actress. And is a, is a much better actress. Um, and like I said, trying to, little Hamilton. I love it. Trying <laughs> to come up with uh, like the the shared universe super film, and then branch off. So then, seeing all the stuff that um, the Phantom Phantom of the Opera gets up to um, when he's going and spying um, in his um, film franchise, and then seeing how Frankenstein has to now cope with the fallout of the vampire zombie wa- vampire mummy war in his <laughs> film as well. Tell me the tell me that the. The, the Invisible Man betrays them all and goes to join Imhotep's army, and that Talbot was in, secretly in love with Sigourney and has to fight Frankenstein at some point. That could be it as well. It's got to happen. <laughs> um, and you know, of course, it becomes a raging success, and everyone fig- and lead- which ensures that um, Stephen Summers doesn't make Van Helsing. Um, which is a disgrace. Which is a terrible <laughs> version of my... Who's the guy that plays Dracula in that film? Richard, Richard Roxburgh. How Roxburgh. does that guy get work? I don't understand. Richard Roxburgh is excellent. Awful. Yeah, he's just not good in playing um, literary figures. Because yeah. he also yeah. butchers Moriarty and <laughs> Holmes yeah. in, in yeah, separate projects. Well, <laughs> that's, it was that really? That's it. That was genius. That like was I said, almost as good as mine. Copyright. <laughs> copyright DM. Yep. Awesome. So that means uh, next up we've got the 90s, I do believe. And, and that, that would be, be Young Crystal. Me. Now, um, mine's also set in an, an alternate universe, like, like David's was. Um, in my universe, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber had some trouble in the 80s and never made his blockbuster production, The Phantom of the Opera. But then, then, then he recovered, and by the 1990s, he's decided, like a fan of the opera, I just want to go all the universal monsters so in a in a in a in a shared universe type Walt Newton sort of play he puts all of the monsters in the one blockbuster play so it's a what universal monsters the musical and so it's universal monsters the musical yay <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber style very cool so of course um the phantom um, even though he'd fallen out with Michael Crawford in the 80s because of the, the failed production, he comes back to portray the Phantom in the in the musical. Um, which means, of course, we, we have to get Sarah Bright, and so she's going to be the Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we'll just get the two obvious ones out of the way. For the Wolf... Oh, my head, I mean, hang on a minute. Speaking of obvious. For the Wolfman, the 90s, we need a, a, a charismatic guy who can sing... Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Not adverse to doing some theatre. Um, Frankenstein's monster is a bit out there, but I think it could work. Um, I've cast Chris Isaac. Okay. That'd be interesting. Really? He can, he can sing. Yeah. He does a little bit of acting. Yes. And he's yeah. quite tall. Is he quite tall? He's quite he is, tall. yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Well, in got, that case, it works. And he's got that forehead. 
He's got the four years. Yeah. You're, well, totally, no, you're, you're totally right. You've convinced yeah. me. And at that You've point, he's, he's also young enough to be able to do the physical aspect of it mm-hmm. as well, yeah. I think. Got yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, for Dracula, I wanted somebody... No, I wanted to Hollywood it up a bit. Uh, and I wanted somebody who is uh, good-looking, charismatic, can sing. So I went with Kevin Spacey. Nice. <laughs> we might be a tad I, I think it's got to be too far with good-looking, though. Mm. Uh, Kevin Spacey in the 90s. At that point. To each their own. Yeah, it's a man. Now, with the mummy, um, it really didn't matter who the guy looked like because he's going to be wrapped in bandages the whole time. And there's got to be someone who probably doesn't mind that. And someone who could uh, ham it up a bit. Can also sing. I went with Tim Curry. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Great. Awesome. Great. The Invisible Man. Now I had to, I had to make sure this would work, so I, I went and made sure this person could sing, and because I'd forgotten about Sweeney Todd, who can sing. I went Johnny Depp. Good. Just for the charisma, and it kind of seemed like a Tim Burton-y sort of role. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I've also decided to put the creature from the Black Lagoon into the play, and the creature from the Black Lagoon is going to be Martin Short. <laughs> Does he sing? He can sing. What's the uh, Gilman song he, he called? He does a lot of theatre during this point in time. Yeah. So, uh, Have you actually named the songs, is there? No, I, haven't, I didn't get that far. <laughs> <laughs> we should write some songs. I'm, I'm forever blowing bubbles. Well, I sure could say that easy. Easily, easily. So, yes. Uh, didn't cast any of the ladies other than Sarah? Well, um, I'm not as familiar with the ladies from the movies, okay. given that they're generally there just as a love interest anyway. <laughs> um, and um, I haven't seen all of the movies, uh, so I just went with the, the, the main monsters. Okay. Yeah. And you I, did well. And I think Sarah Brightman would make a fantastic Bride of Frankenstein. If you frizz up that hair and put some grey streaks down the side, yeah. she'd mm-hmm. be awesome. Yeah. She, she was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Very well done. Yeah. I want to see it. Yeah. We should do it. I did toss up with putting Rob Guest in as a, as a Phantom of the Opera, but really, you want you want Michael You want the original yeah. and the best. Who doesn't love to see Frank Spencer singing? <laughs> Very well done. Yeah. Sing once again with me. <laughs> so, uh, last but not least, we have uh, Richard, who's doing the, the modern era. I am doing the modern era. So is that like two thousand? all of the 2000s, is basically um, what you're saying? I'm doing it as in, what if they started making these films right now? Which is what they're doing. Yeah. So you're going to pre-up them. I am going to pre-up them. And what, what's more important... I'm going to do it better than they do. <laughs> well, that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, after the absolute debacle of trying to relaunch this twice previously, once with Dracula Untold and the Wolfman before that, they're a bit antsy about starting with, with Dracula again, or the Wolfman. So, they, but they think, you know, Frankenstein. We could get Frankenstein right. And they've learned their lesson. Well, they, did, they did Frankenstein as well, though. Did they? I am Frankenstein. Or Frankenstein. I Frankenstein. I Frankenstein. Was that then? Yeah. I didn't think that was... Well, Dracula Untold is technically not either, but they yeah. made it so that it could possibly sort of... Could yeah, possibly yeah, yeah. be if they wanted to. Yeah. We could say it was an Aussie University. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Aussie. <laughs> but either, either way, they've, either decided, way they've decided, let's start with Frankenstein. Good, good, good choice. Know. And in fact, a lot of what they're going to do here is follow the pattern of what the original films yeah. did as well, including a little bit of stunt casting at one point too. Okay. They decide, um, first of all, Victor... And off his success playing Victor Frankenstein on the stage in England, they actually get Benedict Cumberbatch awesome. to play Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> he, does a, he does a stage version. Yeah. Yeah, he and Johnny it, it Lee Miller. Is it good? He's it, terrific. Yeah. Oh, he, wow. he and Johnny Lee Miller, and what they would do is they would alternate roles each night. 
So one would play the monster and one would play Victor Frankenstein, and then the next night they'd swap. That's awesome. Yeah, the idea Isn't being... Isn't Miller the US Sherlock? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the two yeah, Sherlock actors. Stocks. Yeah. Doing <laughs> we're doing... Yeah, Frankenstein and the monster. Yeah. I've got to see it. Yeah. It's good. We, we saw it, um, We saw a broadcast of it um, at, at um, the Nova. Mm. It was really good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, so Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, because the play has also been a success, they decide not to go with the big imposing version of the, you know, the silent imposing version of the monster. Mm. All right. um, they actually want to have the interaction between them. So they cast Christian Bale as the monster. Nice. He's intense, slightly edgy in yeah. real life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for Elizabeth, um, Victor's betrothed, uh, they choose Kira Knightley because, you know, you can't have a costume drama without her. <laughs> it's in a contract. Exactly. And like you, I've actually cast uh, Fritz rather yeah. than, than, than Igor. And they cast Paul Dano. Nice. he's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the film is a, is a roaring success. A roaring success. A roaring success. So the cast like that, how could it not? Um, it helps actually that um, Christopher Nolan is also the director on this one. He's the only director I've cast, but I think he can get the right atmosphere for what they, they want to achieve here. They want a realistic take on things because yeah. you know that's what you do these days. Yeah. Anyway, it turns out to be a big success, but they're still a little bit antsy, so they think okay, cool. rather than going with one of the others, let's move on to Bride. Ooh. Nolan gets involved again. Well, yeah, you've got a success, so you make a sequel. That's how it works these days. Right. Uh-huh. They actually they struggle a bit with the Bride to begin with, but they are spot on with casting Doctor Pretorius. Yeah. who is the uh, doctor that actually convinces Victor to make the bride, they cast Christoph Waltz. Nice. That slightly crazy German, he's, he's got it down pat. It anyway, having recently seen Penny Dreadful, they settle on Eva Green as the bride. Because, you know, she kind of looks like the bride anyway in real life. So yeah, Because she's stunning. And she is stunning, yes. So it works. She is. And she can act. Well, you know. I guess. <laughs> I think she can. Yeah, she's Plus, she right. plays. She does that slightly quirky out there. I love, I love her. You got, got no yeah. argument from here. Yeah, I don't love her. Now, <laughs> now, this is the, this is where the first bit of stunt casting comes in in these films. All right, there is a woman in the original Universal movies called Una O'Connor. Is this the lady that screams? All the, the lady time? that screams all the time. The crazy like Irish woman. <laughs> And so they decide they want a character like that, an actress playing different characters, but effectively the same. She's brilliant. So they cast Helena Bottom Carter in the role. Genius. Because she is also completely nuts. Anyway, it works. Wow. These films are massive successes, and so they're like, yep, that's it, we can do Dracula now. So who, do, who directs Bride? Is it Bride is also It's not Nolan. Tim Burton? No. Okay. No, no, no. Intrigued. No. So also Nolan. Also Nolan. All right, gotcha. Because Tim Burton is used for Dracula. Gotcha. Good yeah. choice. So, once again, they want to go all out. Yeah. They want, a, they want an all-star cast here. They want good actors and one instance of stud casting. <laughs> all right. So, for Dracula, they cast Michael Fassbender. Not right. Johnny Depp. No, 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 no. <laughs> for, for once, Johnny Depp doesn't make it into this one. Michael Fassbender, he's just on a roll playing villains, you know, big imposing villains. So, good choice. Yeah. And then, of course, you need somebody of that calibre then to play Van Helsing his equal so they get Daniel Day-Lewis nice you know he's a bit older now so milkshakes Dracula <laughs> if I had a blood milkshake and you had a blood milkshake okay um, for Mina Harker they cast Natalie Portman Academy Award winner yeah. so you know that's, that's pretty much what they're looking at here 
Um, and I've actually cast Jonathan Harker and Dr. Seward as well. Um, Jonathan Harker, they cast Henry Cavill. Yeah. Um, and for Dr. Seward, who is a bit of a weirdo, they cast Tom Hiddleston. Okay. All right. But what, what about he's, uh, he's, the other he's, dude? He's, he's my stunt casting. Is he stunt casting? Right. In the original Universal movies, yeah. Fritz and Renfield from Dracula are both played by Dwight Fry, the same guy. Ah. So they actually get Paul Dano in to play Renfield as well. Fritz! <laughs> <laughs> Once again, it's Dracula. Yeah. You know, it does make you wonder how bad Untold was because they couldn't make it successful. Like, you would think Dracula could the be successful. The thing with Untold is because they weren't sure what the tone was meant to be. Like, yeah. Luke Evans is perfectly fine. But yeah. it just doesn't... Like, in, the, in that particular thing. But it's, yeah, just, yeah, it's yeah. just... It goes... It's, it varies from, you know, horror to action yeah. to... Yeah, and it goes with matrixy, matrixy yeah. at one point. It's like, mm. what is going on here? Yeah, yeah it's terrible, terrible film. Yeah. Well, although better than I Frank so, which is even worse. <laughs> okay, so their their next step then is, of course, the Wolfman, the obvious follow up. And for Larry Talbot, they cast Hugh Jackman because they're not very imaginative, <laughs> and he has come off he has come off playing Wolverine, and he is a, a good actor and a good charisma, and they think, yeah, we can capitalise on his Wolverine success. And, yeah. you know, and having actually successfully played the part in Broadway. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> in, in the 90s. In the 90s. <laughs> oh, that works so well. Yeah. He's, like, he's like, yeah, I'll return to the pub. Absolutely. I don't absolutely. have to sing. He doesn't have to sing anymore, so, yeah. you know. But he can um, if he wants. Sue <laughs> Jackman. Exactly. And uh, for Sir John Talbot... I've actually cast Jeremy Irons myself. Obviously older now and able to... F- oh, I thought you were going Anthony role. Hopkins. Well, there was actually... there was. I didn't want to cast Anthony Hopkins because he already played... Um, so he's already in the actual Wolfman. In the Wolfman, yeah. And they don't want to go anywhere near that. They're trying to, you know... Oh, so in your universe, this movie actually existed. The Wolfman was made. And, and now they they're, re- they're, they're redoing it, it again. again. Yeah. Oh, okay, right, yeah, okay. Remember, Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood remakes films five years after they're finished these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't like Remake start in productions, but like before the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Jones are remade Spider Man. Jeez. Yeah. So obviously that's working for them. So off they go. Yep, that works. And you know, knowing knowing Hollywood. Oh, he plays good. I didn't really worry too much about that. She's vital to the plot. Yeah, but she doesn't. I don't really think that much about it. I was looking for the key roles for that one. You know. Um, Yeah. So um, they're on a roll. Let's make them all. Which means most likely diminishing returns because once again that's how Hollywood works. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the Invisible Man. Yeah. They want somebody who, uh, you know, a really good actor who can do it without ever showing their face or anything, but can also play that slightly crazy character as well. So they get Gary Oldman. Nice. Yep. And uh, for um, Flora, the daughter, I'm actually making her a little bit younger than the way she is in um, the original film, but they get Chloe Moretz. Okay. Because, you know, she's also kind of weird-looking as well. Um, and <laughs> in, in a cool way. perfectly fine. In a cool way, life. though. She's got an interesting look that okay. can play off oh, that. Um, especially given that you don't have your main character actually appearing at all. Yeah. So then it's straight on to Phantom of the Opera. Now, for Eric the Phantom, once again, you need an actor who can portray a, a wide range of emotions without ever showing their face. But when they do show their face, kind of looks, you know, kind of gaunt. Um, so they get Hugo Weaving. Nice. You know, having done things like V for Vendetta. Um, and because Hugo is, is known but not a huge name actor, um, they then, for Raul, they get Johnny Depp. Dashing, handsome, you know, good romantic hero. It works. But the real thing that needs to sell this is Christine Day. Yeah. All right. So they need somebody who's actually not a bad actress but can also sing. 
And so they get Anne Hathaway. And then, and this is probably my favourite, because I've also cast Lado, the, the Arab. <laughs> Please be an Arab character, actor. No, but somebody who could play Whitewashing, that. Dave! Yeah, Whitewashing. But, but in the coolest possible way, because it's Edward James Olmos! <laughs> Brilliant. And the important thing about Lado is you've got to listen to everything he says at all times if you want to survive, and that's pretty much Edward James Olmos's character. I love Edward James. That's fine. I'll cast him anything you want. Yeah. Um, plus, we uh, we actually offset the whitewashing a little bit with um, black casting for um, the mummy. You know, they want a big imposing figure, and I'm actually going with the original version, so you actually see him outside of the bandages as well. So they cast Idris Elba. <laughs> I knew it! I knew it! That's what I was talking about this the other day. I said, I bet you he cast Idris Elba in something. Well, yeah, I mean... And I just, I'm so sick of that dude. I'm sick of him. I'm thinking about, though, his performance as Heimdall, where, yeah. you know, he, he is quite I'm not saying he's not good. You know. I'm just so tired it's of seeing that. It's an excellent choice. Thing. I'm just it is, it is. because of that conversation. It's, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> and also, um, for the princess, for Helen and the princess, uh, Zoe Saldana, because she's pretty much the highest profile black actress at the moment right. of the right age for it. Okay. You know. You're going to get um, controversy here, Dave. Like right. an all-black cast for a for an Arab-based story. Yeah, but, you know, I've done all-white casts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not anti it, I'm just saying. Well, I mean... You know, I mean, in this day and age, still, there's there's still, Well, there's still an African heritage there. Yeah. No, no, okay. So that I, th- I think would work. Plus, you know, most of the time they cast, you know, white yeah. guys to play the mummy, with the exception of the actual mummy. I film. cast a white dude. Yeah. But I was in the um, 70s, to be, to be fair to me. And I don't have a specific role for him, but I also want F. Murray Abraham and Ben Kingsley to be in this film yeah. as well, <laughs> in, in minor roles. Um, I tried to put Amanda Sante yeah. in, in the mummy. <laughs> and of course, for our hero, unfortunately, they're, they're not all that convinced that the mummy works all that well. Um, outside, because there is a more fa- you know, a famous version of the mummy made more recently, so they do want to bring in some of that action adventure side mm. of it as well. Mm. Yeah, so we're we're casting Chris Pratt because he seems to be the go-to guy for your Indiana Jones type characters, <laughs> even to the point where they think you cast him as Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, so he comes in as our hero. Nice. Um, they don't, however, make a creature from the Black Lagoon. No. Because. Uh, Martin Short killed it. Yeah, unfortunately, Martin Short's song has taken on a life of its own it was so and good. made the character into a bit of a comedy version. Of, you know, um, no, no, no. They they just don't feel that a creature from the Black Lagoon is going to work in this environment. Gotcha. And it is the one. It is the the Universal movie that is actually first of all later than much later than the others, but also completely different. Yeah, like all the others go for that sort of gothic horror approach and that's what they want to focus on because I think that's what's going to sell in yeah, the present. Yeah. I mean, I mean that makes perfect sense in the storyline that you've invited yeah. in, in, in but I still think the creature in the Black Lagoon movie would work I would absolutely I think it, it would def- I think it would work yeah. Yeah, as long not, as you play but not, up but not in Richard's series no, 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 no. no so, but as long as you went full on horror and I the important thing too is to actually make the non-creature characters a little bit more interesting because yeah. really let's face facts right. the creature is the only interesting character in Creature from the Black Lagoon <laughs> That's a bit mean. It would be if we'd seen the whole thing. What about Kay? <laughs> um, all right, so that's uh, that so was that's a lot my, of fun. We that's my universal. Yeah, that was you. We obviously had a lot of fun. That I like the way that we somehow tied it into Crystal's uh, <laughs> musical version too. That was awesome. That was awesome. So yeah, we'll do we'll do another recast at some point for sure because we all love them. They are a lot of fun. So let's finish up with coming soon. 
And in cinemas October 29th, we get Sleeping with Other People, which I don't know anything about. So I don't know you're allowed to do that in cinemas. Well, it depends on the cinema, though. <laughs> I can tell you some stories. Uh, dressmaker, which again, I don't know anything about. Make, makes dresses? This is weird. I actually researched these last night, and now I've forgotten them both. So they'll give you an the idea of how interested I am. Dressmaker is... It's, it's not the, na- it's the Kate nasty Winslet? one. It's yeah. Kate Winslet. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Kate Yeah. Winslet. Yeah. Um, and The Last Witch Hunter. <laughs> Vin Diesel. Hunting, really? Hunting witches. Have you not seen the trailer to this? No, I can't it's say hilarious. that. It looks bad. It looks so bad. Great. So, but so bad in an awesome way. So yeah. I'll go check it out. Does it look Sharknado 3 bad? No, not quite that bad. Um, but, uh, yeah, no. The last, it's Vin Diesel uh, avenging the loss of his loved ones and hunting down witches and various other creatures of the night. <laughs> That's it for episode 166. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed it. I know we enjoyed it. Who would you cast in a Universal Monster film? That's it for me <laughs> and the crew. Joe. I'm now trying to compose in my head this Creature from the Black Lagoon song <laughs> that Martin Short is going to sing for us. Who is that? I'm forever blowing bubbles. <laughs> it's so... And the clothes. It's so black in <laughs> my Black Lagoon. Isn't this bubbles, bubbles, cream? bubbles. Watch me swim, watch me swim. <laughs> I'm going to kill that lady. Watch me swim, watch me swim. I'm going to eat her dead. He's not going to kill her, he's in love with her. Yeah. He wants to breed with her. <laughs> watch me swim, watch me swim. I'm going to breed with the lady. <laughs> Make some little creatures from the black look. Sorry. Hey, look. How do I follow that one? Um, it sounds like, you know... Uh, a Charlie, Br- uh, a very Charlie Brown Universal special. Um, <laughs> uh, I am in a recast of the Universal Mon- Universal Monsters. I am the only logical choice because you know I am that damn evil. Um, <laughs> any others that you care to throw in there? And Crystal, bye. <laughs> You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.